This is Gail Cook. And this is Kara Amy Maxfield. And this This is Permanent Filter. Hello and welcome. This is Kara Amy Maxfield. And this is Gail Cook. And on this episode of Permanent Filter, we thought we would start the new year off by talking about those people in our lives who have influenced us. Now, they're in our lives for some of the selections for Gail and myself um, are directly in our lives. They're people that we know and people that we love, friends, teachers, family members. And some of those selections are people that we've never met. And uh, because of this whole concept of death, we will now never meet, but nevertheless have had uh, a huge influence on who we are respectively um, just through the work that they've done. So we're calling, we're calling this episode of Permanent Filter, This Is Us and Them. So Gail, I have selected uh, on my list Mm-hmm. This uh, this short list because there are many more than this, but these are the people that I've been thinking of as late, and just sort of where my life is at at the moment, and people who've influenced me so far, but people who I'm also looking to their influence uh, to take me further. Mm-hmm. So there are five people on this list, and three of these people are. Four, actually, well, three of these people, two I'm lumping together, which sounds disrespectful, but these were both former profs of mine. So with no disrespect to either of these gentlemen, I'm putting them as one entity because parts of uh, their influence or aspects of their influence are what make them heroes of mine. So I'm, I'm doing them as a twofer. Then two other individuals are uh, well-known people. One has since passed from this world and this other is very much alive. And Mm -hmm. then two are friends. So I will only be mentioning them by first names because I don't want them to be, I don't want to violate their privacy too much. I don't want them to be inundated with fans who, (laughs) you know, uh, individuals desperate for their guidance. So to maintain their privacy, I'm, I'm only using their first names. And uh, I may get to, depending on how I'm feeling after going through the inspiration, to mm-hmm. talk about an individual in my life who's been, uh, well, the exact opposite of. So right. I think everyone's had at least one person in their life who has been the kind of person where, where they've said, um, I'm going to show this person. Right. Or this person person has been a cautionary tale in which they haven't had a directly destructive influence but they have had a um they have shown this person what not to be by their very personal example right so but we'll see i i will keep this into this mystery individual to the end of the episode and we'll see if i'm in the kind of spirit where i want to bring him up after all of this this inspiration and support and, you know, positivity that I think we can all use as 2021 gets underway. Okay. So the first individual in question is Mm -hmm. a well-known person and somebody who sadly is no longer with us. He passed away a couple of years ago. He is a man by the name of Bill Cunningham. And I first became... Well, let me tell you about him, Gail. I was introduced to the extraordinary Mr. Cunningham through one of the friends who's also on my list and I will be talking about later. And through a film that's available and it is currently available in the Edmonton Public Library. Mm -hmm. So I highly recommend people get out the film, uh, Bill Cunningham, New York. So Bill was, for decades, a fashion photographer for the New York Times. Now, it may seem strange to say, yes, I I hear your exaltation at a surprise to find out that a person would, like, first person on my list, my go-to person, would be a fashion photographer, because this makes it seem as though... 
hmm, okay, I can see you admiring somebody's artistry, but where does the influence come in? Well, the influence comes in because Bill was a man who led a life that was extremely simple in a very complicated city, New York City. He was a man who lived very simple in a world of opulence and extravagance. Right. And he was a man who knew himself so well. He had such a strong sense of who he was that he was able to live so simply in this world, pursuing single-mindedly what he loved to do. So he had a feature, he had a a feature in the New York Times every week, which was a fashion spread. So Bill went around on his bicycle, never owned a vehicle, was just braved in New York City traffic in order to go around and to take photographs of people on the street Mm -hmm. and to, um, to gauge kind of where the temperature of sort of what was happening in terms of sort of art and culture, which, which all very much starts on the street. And Bill knew this like no one else did. So everything that comes out of the big fashion houses, all the trends, everything that dictates filters back to kind of the mainstream and the middle class all starts with what are the people on the street wearing? That's where the trends start. Right. But this is where the, the ethics of this beautiful man come into play, where Bill had been doing this for years and years, so taking pictures of people. And now at a time, thank goodness, there's much more acceptance of sort of, of individual style, of personal style, of this whole notion of the individual spirit coming out through the way they choose to adorn themselves and that's so and that and and that that was so what was so marvelous about the man capturing these courageous and marvelous people who were in decades past who would have you know and who were getting beaten up by people who didn't like certain people men dressing in a certain flamboyant way women dressing in a certain idiosyncratic way were just their marvelous brave selves and bill documented that and and got support for him by his shall we say legitimization mm-hmm. of who they were now right. I, I must add too bill was a man who always wore he says like i have no personal style he'd say in his wonderful massachusetts bostonian accent he was originally from massachusetts um <laughs> Uh, way back when and he would say well I have no style but the thing is is his style was in the simplicity of his own style and his appreciation of other style so he always wore this sort of almost like this blue kind of chairman Mao suit because he's on his bicycle he has to be practical right Right. bicycle in New York streets with his camera slung over his shoulder and just capturing um, you know capturing all of these fantastic people now the thing is with Bill too. And this is a big part of what I admire about him is that for him, it was about the individual. Like he captured street style, but he also captured haute couture. He, he was known as well by, you know, the people who were bold in their style choices in, in, uh, you know, Greenwich Village, as he was by Anna Wintour and socialites and people dictating what the trends would be from their lofty offices and on the pages of Vogue magazine. And mm-hmm. they revered him for his eye and for his uncompromising um, adherent to uh, to individuality and style. Like mm-hmm. he would not take so much when he was photographing any event, he would not take so much as a cup of coffee. So, so, and he, re- mm-hmm. so what about him that you, um, w- we hear a lot about what you admire about him. So how do you implement that into your own life? Oh, well, that's a very, that's a very, uh, Excellent question, Gail. What I'm thinking about particularly now as I'm 
will be going through a, like a move, like leaving the, the house that I'm in to some other place in the, in the very near future. I think about Ville and his, his belief in simplicity so you can live the life that you're meant to live. Mm-hmm. So he lived in New York in a tiny, tiny apartment that had neither private bathroom or kitchen. Uh. New York, it's very easy to live out. Uh, he's like, what do, I, what do I need a kitchen for? What do I need a bath for is how he would say. So he had like there was a bath that was used by tenants on the floor. But essentially, he, he lived in with like a pullout bed and file drawers mm-hmm. that he kept all of his uh, his photographs and the prints from his photographs and and his camera. So essentially, he lived in a space that was like big enough to lie down in and to hold a few cabinets in. Right. So he paid very little. I believe at the time it was like a rent controlled apartment in a kind of an iconic building, but he paid very little and he actually asked for very little for like the work was its own reward. There were times where people like offered to pay him for work and he, and this, this quote that he has is one of my formative quotes. And I want to, if I ever get a tattoo, I'm engraving this on myself. Mm-hmm. And it, he said, and I quote, if you never take the money, they can't tell you what to do. And that was his artistic credo. He did exactly what he wanted to. He never mm-hmm. took anything by way of, not that he didn't take payment, he was paid by the New York Times, not not that much. But there right. were other projects in which he did for the love of the project. So it was his adherence to a small amount of space that basically contained enough for him to sleep in and, and like barely live in. But then his life was lived out in the street. Wow. Wow. So it was this adherence to a very simplistic life, but an incredibly rich life. Right. So, and, and he was a very private man and you get the sense, everything that I've read and certainly the film, Bill Cunningham, New York talks about um, very little about his personal life. And he was asked point blank within the movie, whether or not he'd actually, um, and, and I thought a little bit like invasively, whether he'd ever been in love. Because part of what they were trying, I think, to kind of like weasel out of him was, was he, was he gay? And what comes out of that was he was gay, gay at heart, if that makes sense. And he was somebody who was gay, but who never, quote unquote, practiced because he still was a Catholic who didn't believe that he should, you know, like you can be gay. You just can't practice being gay. I mean, you can't physically be in a relationship, but that was something that he had made peace with. And that was something that he believed to, and you had to admire somebody who holds true to their beliefs, Mm -hmm. but that that might've been something that caused a rift with himself and his, his family. Apparently he came from a wealthy Bostonian family that Mm -hmm. didn't support his, uh, his artistic ventures. He started off actually as a hat designer Oh, wow. And then transitioned. Yes, yes. So it was, it was uh, William J. Hatz. And he had a small but artistic studio in New York and then transitioned when he couldn't make a go of that. Right. Uh, he also served time in the army during the war as well, too. Oh, yeah? So he was a veteran. So this was a man of many layers and many layers and many secrets, but secrets in the sense of his private business, as opposed to secrets of oh, horrible things to come out about him. Mm-hmm. But uh, but anyway, so, Gail, very good question in, in, in that this is what uh, this is what I've admired about in the past and going forward in a stream down life for myself. This mm-hmm. is what I admire. Uh, these these are the kind of tenets that w- I will take with me going forward. Very cool. So he received 
he received Bill, and this is this is also documented in the the Bill Cunningham New York documentary. He had received a uh, award, a sort of French uh, award from uh, the French government for recognition of his artistic contributions. And he showed up in his blue suit, and he was very moved. He was in tears, and he spoke uh, a few words in French. Uh-huh. And and said another beautiful quote about he who looks for beauty shall surely find it. And when he yeah. spoke those words, he choked up as I I did just now, even repeating um, his quotation of a quotation. And it's just that also is something that I carry close to my heart and I carry with me as I move through in life. And I hope Bill's. Bill Cunningham's oh, getting choked up. I'm only on my first one, Gail, and I'm getting emotional. But speaking of this wondrous, wonderful man and his gifts of personal integrity, uh-huh. where he didn't compromise his entire artistic vision and he never would take anything in compensation for, um, as he said, he's like, I'm not interested in celebrities with their free clothes. I'm interested in the individuals on their street and the way that they choose to bring their spirit out in how they dress. Mm -hmm. So it is that his artistic integrity, his, um, his streamlined um, parsimony, like not a cheapness in any way, but the frugality that enabled him to live simply Uh and his true adherence to who he was as an individual. Wow. Those are the things that I admire about man, the man, and that is that is why he's first on my list. Excellent. So, so, so who else is on he, your list? Who else is on my list? Well, I'm going to break things up by bringing on board a, a friend of mine. So this is a friend of mine, and her name is Cherie. Uh-huh. And she has been a, a friend, probably other than yourself, who is my newest friend in terms of length of friendship, but no less in terms of integrity. She and I have been friends for, um, I'm going to say about five, four years, definitely four to five years. And I first uh, met her when she was hired uh, as the manager, so a manager uh, over me. When uh-huh. we were both working in a uh, entrepreneurial program in a nonprofit organization, right? So when and as the hiring often is, it was the good word for her was given by another coworker who highly recommended her, and and our boss, both Cherie and my boss brought her on because of this. But when I heard that Cherie and her husband were proponents of the tiny houses and were looking into getting, see, can you see a theme developing the whole simplicity, (laughs) the whole kind of frugality, the whole direction and focus. So she and her husband were paring down and they had a little first time I met with Cherie, she brought me in this adorable model that her husband had made. He's a graphic designer and he's a wonderful person himself. And he had made on a 3d printer of the dimensions of their tiny home. And I thought, I'm going to like this woman. And (laughs) indeed, expectations were high. And the reality of her in person were, were every bit, every, she was every bit the person that I hope she would be. And uh, the reason that she's a person on my influential list is because she is a person who is a religious person. She's a born again Christian that she will Uh unapologetically, unapologetically, but rarely talk about in terms of, look at me, I'm a religious person. She lives that religion in every moment of her life, in every interaction. I think, and and I bring up the fact that she's a born-again Christian, because not that it's anything to be ashamed of, and not indeed with Cherie very much to be proud of, but because... I feel that it's one of the few groups of people that feel people feel comfortable being detrimental towards. 
like yeah. in a way people aren't about other religious groups. You dare, and rightly so, you dare never say things about Jewish people or about Muslims or about other religions. People, it feels like people feel very comfortable attacking born again Christians. And I'm here to say Sharia and her husband are both proudly so, and they live it in every sense. I've never oh. seen anybody in life who so much steps up to help people without any sense of martyrdom without uh, as though this is something that she is privileged to be able to help people out and this is not only her friends but this is people that she doesn't know I mean this is taking people into her home there are in need this is giving away what little she would have in terms of material possessions or in terms of money to help out. This is in terms of being a leader at work. I saw oh, wow. her step up so much of the time, Gail, when things were very, very toxic. Oh, and really? she didn't compromise herself at all. Even at the cost of it. And this is to me what both like a leader and a hero and often there's overlap in those categories. Right. If it doesn't cost you anything in terms of money, career, even sometimes friendship, right? Because sometimes we do things where we, we have to cross friends, sometimes for the good of the friend. Mm -hmm. We care more about the friend than the friendship. I've seen Cherie even as, you know, she was nervous about things, step up. And uh, it was very inspiring and energizing for me at very dark times. She always had my back. She's a person that I feel that I can say anything about myself, even those parts that I don't like, even things that I'm ashamed of, and there won't be judgment. She's right. a very judgment-free person and a great, great listener, so as well you, as a, a wonderful conversationalist. So if you, oh, I'm, getting, I'm tearing up, second time, tearing up. <laughs> Cherie is very much alive, so I'm not like, but I'll never meet her. Yes, go on. So have you um, found that her influence has rubbed down, out on, rubbed on, rubbed out on you? Like, have you taken some of those... Um, things that she does, um, looked at it and integrated it into what you do from day to day? I absolutely have. One on a religious, on a spiritual level. Mm -hmm. I really, because she is that kind of person who lives her religion, it's made me look at things and religion in a different way. But um, your question is very, very um, probing and pertinent both. In terms of, Cherie is the type of person where people change because of what she does and not how she shames you into it. Right. I've often wondered as a leader and as a follow and as, as somebody who follows people that inspire me, how do you affect change in a person's behavior? but without the finger wagging, scolding, and what for particularly doesn't work for me, shaming. Because and you know, when you say, yeah, go on. Like for me, when I see a person like that, I want to emulate them because they're not preaching at me or, you know, it's like, oh, that person's really great. Mm. That I was similar to that person. Like, do you know what I mean? And then I do. A lot of the time I do. I just try to do that. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that's, you move towards that. So not only has Sheree had that influence on me, on, on me directly in my character, she's also showed me without ever quote unquote teaching me that how one affects that. And I've tried to implement that. So as certain people, certain people in my life where I'm like, I, this sounds, this sounds very presumptuous, but it's like, or pretentious, but where, where I feel like maybe I can kind of affect a change. I see sort of them doing certain things that I think that they would be better. I think they would be better if they changed themselves, but certain things where I'm like, yeah, I kind of was like that. And I think you'll be better if you kind of, just for example, maybe being bitter, 
like right. talking bitterly about things. Right. But the thing is to sort of to shame, to finger wag, I know it doesn't work for me. So yeah. what I try to do is kind of change things around people that I think, I think that could help them without being, this is a teachable moment, which I absolutely cannot stand that phrase or the concept behind. Who are you to teach anyone? Oh, I'm the person who's got it all together. But the thing is, is with Cherie, because it just becomes out of respect for her, mm-hmm. I want to my ways here's here's also a definite example of how it's had an effect how she's had an effect on me I have a very vulgar mouth and I try to curtail it for the podcast and I and I'm pretty successful at curtailing it in a professional sense but when I am with friends I talk like I'm a a sailor on shore leave as the saying would go right you're full of it I never found that (laughs) Uh, oh really I, I am quite I, I've gotten better see this is Cherie's influence now because Cherie would never scold me and in fact even from her I would find like it's not like well I'm gonna step it up like sort of like a, a recalcitrant che- child or teenager because Cherie didn't swear doesn't swear or rarely I should say rarely swears when she the few times she's had it's had a huge impact I also curtail it out of respect for her because I'm like, mm, she's too classy. She doesn't need to hear me drop F this, F that. And let me tell you something too, Gail. She's also taught me the power of being selectively obscene. Uh-huh. The very few times I've heard her swear, it's made me go, this is a serious situation. Right. And one time when she came back from a meeting uh-huh. and she had come back and said, and I quote, like, I can't take this shit anymore. And I'm like, wow. So it's shown me like how much classier when you can use other words to describe things. Yeah. And often how I use obscenity a lot, as I have done in the past, in private with friends, that it takes away, that it lessens its impact. I think that's true. So, So there's two aspects there, but the most important thing, and that's like a great question that you asked about with, with, uh, with this person on my list is that she's shown me how to change myself and how to have an influence on others by show do not lecture. Yeah. So. Oh, that's great. She sounds like a great person. I can't wait to meet her. I just, and I'm hoping that you will shortly when COVID, because <laughs> we're keeping, I haven't, I haven't seen her for ages. I've spoken so like with six her. Six or seven years then. Yeah, six or, yes. That's like, when did COVID, when did the whole sort of lockdown start? Yeah, you're right. At least six or seven years. Time has no meaning anymore. No. So, um, yes. That is, uh, that is very true. That is the world that we live in. But fortunately, we do have the, both the memories of people, the memories of people both f- living and departed to sustain us during this time. Exactly. So, the, so the third person, persons that I, with no disrespect, have put onto my list are two educators of the highest order. So these were professors of mine, different universities, but um, different subject matter, but, and, and both highly individualistic as that's a characteristic that runs through all of the people who influence in my life, yourself very much included in that. Um, So the first, the first individual was when I was at, um, the University of Regina in Regina, Saskatchewan. Mm -hmm. And the man's name is Gary Sherbert. And I actually wrote a profile article of him years ago when I was in school, I was in journalism called a refreshing scoop of Sherbert. And that is indeed his real name. That's That's not his stage name. So, and he's a ginger. So somehow, I don't know, it all kind of goes together like that. (laughs) So I actually was, he is an English professor and he, but like no English professor you've ever had. Now, although I was in journalism and I did my pre-journalism in religious studies, did kind of a, a dual 
major, if you want to call it that, of religious studies and political studies. Uh I actually specifically took an English course with him because I wanted to take a class with him. So several friends of mine were like fanboys and girls of his and were just like, I have to meet this man who has such an influence on these friends that love, you know, talking, you know, like love intellectual discussions without pretension, love Mm -hmm. to learn, love to discover, love to read and think and ponder and philosophize. And I thought, who is this man who's had such a great influence? So I signed up, even though my course, I was overloaded with courses, but I'm like, I'm not graduating from this program without taking a course with Gary. So he, and he, again, he is everything that um, uh, meeting him and taking the class with him was, my friends did not disappoint in their ravings for him. So what is it about this guy? Mesmerizing. Okay, what is it about this man? He is like this the second professor on my list, who I shall talk about shortly, is a person who is singularly absolutely brilliant, like a brilliant scholar in terms of the way that their mind works and takes in ideas, and is simultaneously brilliant at teaching that subject matter. So there are many people in this world who are gifted and who work at their gift of being intellectuals. They love to learn and they love to understand. That does not necessarily mean that translates into teaching people what they learn. In fact, sometimes quite the opposite. There are people who they're very knowledgeable and highly intelligent and truly intellectual, but that not only do the, does that not translate to other people, uh-huh. it often is off-putting. So he had that marvelous gift. Right. And the class that I took was, and I mean, it's been, <laughs> it's been a few years now since I was in his class, but the class had to do was an English class talking about uh, King Arthur and the legends, the Arthurian legends and the meaning behind that in the bond that is greater than just a physical bond. It's the cool. bond between people who love each other. I'm getting emotional about what's happening, Gail. It's all of this, <laughs> it's all of this quarantine. But the, the takeaway from the class, and I'm talking like talking years now since I was in his class, But the bond between people where it's like the bond of the ring, where you make a promise to someone and your word being your bond and how you would give your life for people that you care about. Uh And that is worth more than any contract in a court of law. Mm -hmm. Because it's a bond that's much deeper than that. But we went like, it was such a rich and deep class and such a departure from the very practical journalism classes that I was taking at the time. Right. But it's, this man was like, there's, there's, there's props as, as there are teachers in like sort of secondary classes, not post-secondary classes, but teachers Mm -hmm. in high school and junior high, where it's just like, there's people where they're phoning it in. Like, there you go. I'm there. I've done my required. And, you know, who knows how much work they put into grading the essays. And that's very hard work because it's like, it's not like something that's more quantifiable. It's qualifiable work. So they actually have to go through it. Right. You know, there's not an answer key where you got the right answer. So the thing is, is going through essays is can be time consuming, emotionally draining. But it's Uh just the feedback that made me a better thinker, a better writer that enriched my life with the single class that I took from him. And Uh here also, too, with the man, the man comes when he was the youngest of a very big family of, I believe, like 13 children. And his family was very poor. Uh huh. His family is all employed in the prison system in Ontario. Oh wow! And That's... they, yeah, like this was very, <laughs> this was a very cool thing. And his mom was very young when she had her kids, 
And they were really hard, like a very hard Scrabble family, the type of mm-hmm. people that I really admire, where it's like they have been given very little, very few resources. Right. And they are by their own hard work and their own kind of like ingenuity. Gary was able to put himself in through university and, uh-huh. and get a PhD and then inspire other people. But they also are, Gary and his family both, are the kind of people who also never forget where they came from. So this isn't a story of me saying, Gail, I love people who pull themselves up by their bootstraps and take no assistance from anywhere and tell other people that there is no, you know what I mean? Like, it's just like hard work is what will get you out of poverty. It's like, oh no, oh no, very generous even now, Um, you know? So uh, just a just a beautiful, inspirational, mentally uh, just amazing man. Right. So oh, that is awesome. Mr. So then to just sort of segue into the counterpart, although these two gentlemen have never met, as far as I know, is is Mr. Peter Rocha, and he uh-huh. was a professor of mine of uh in at, at McEwen University in um in Edmonton Alberta and yeah. I another person that I specifically took courses with in rhetoric because I wanted to take classes with him and I wanted to learn from the best so right. rhetoric is a subject matter that often gets is just the word itself is actually a pejorative. So people think empty rhetoric. Rhetoric is often coupled with the term empty, uh-huh. meaning that it's just words, words, words. This is actually of ret- what rhetoric is, and this is what I learned from Peter, was rhetoric is basically language. It's, it's math with language. It's how do you persuade people right. in the best way. Re- Sometimes it's like sort of the empty rhetoric of politicians, but it's also the rhetoric of other people who are inspirational, like Winston Churchill, of great leaders, of Martin Luther King, mm-hmm. of the kind of great leaders. How do you formulate language in such a way that leads people out of desperate situations, that right. leads people forward in wartime? Mm-hmm. That is basically what... Peter taught in his classes. And I remember a friend of mine who was just like really brought her A game to her class, was a good student anyway, but was like, I don't want him to think of me as some sort of punk. I have to, I have to like study. And this was, these were mentally, like mentally, um, what's the word for it? grueling classes not by virtue of how he taught them by virtue of the subject matter like this was high this was high level high level intellectual i was gonna say stuff doesn't that sound good i've really (laughs) learned intellectual stuffiness kind of stuff but this wasn't like this was kind of this was introductory rhetoric so this was undergrad university course that was on a graduate level. And this was what we were learning. I don't know a person who took these classes were jam packed because people wanted to learn for learning sake. This wasn't a, and and the course that I was, or the program that I was in, which was uh, um, technical, technical writing was very much like um, an applied program. It was very much to get you in the industry. So a lot of classes were, you want to learn what you can take into industry. There was a practicality to them. There weren't philosophical or theoretical classes, but people were, including myself, were taking Peter's classes for the sheer love of learning. And they did have a great application, actually. You take a lot of these rhetoric classes and you can apply them to your writing. I'm uh, Peter was one of the most influential people on my writing in my mm-hmm. entire life. Because so, of the way he enabled me, he enabled me to break down language and make it more persuasive. So was it his yeah. style of teaching that helped you in your writing or is it uh, what he actually taught? 
It was both. Okay. It was both. The fact that there was this really intellectually grueling subject matter that he made possible by virtue of his patience, of his ability to take complicated concepts in that brilliant mind of his and show people. He opened a door for myself and for other students into that whole world. So he had, he was an amazing translator of that. And again, like Peter, I mean, like Gary, um, had, was totally unpretentious with it. Awesome. If you wanted to learn, he was there for you. And his door was always like his, 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 basically as long as he was like awake, he was there for you. Oh, that's really great. It was just a lot of instructors like that. So, oh, you don't No. So who else has been a good influence or bad influence in your life? Okay. Well, there is one more person in the good influence category, Mm -hmm. and that is a friend of mine who I will only list by first name. So that is my friend, Valley. So Valley is a woman who um, I met through my sister. She's been my older sister, my sister who is quite a bit older than me. So Valley was a friend of hers for many years. I mean, still and still is. Um, so she's a mutual friend. So I met her through my sister. But even from the get-go, when I met her when I was, uh, you know, a young teen, and I thought she was the coolest person that I had ever met oh, up cool. to that point, and still and still is, uh, and still is one of them. But now I've met more people, so now I've met more cool people. Present company accepted. So uh, she's one of the coolest people. But she is an artist and uh, like a visual artist and um, just a very creative person in a very um, pragmatic sense, and that she actually creates physical objects she does a lot of ceramics and jewelry just amazing amazing things she creates but it's her way of looking at things gail that's the there's artists that are crafts people where they create things and magical beautiful practical things but it's not necessarily their way of thinking valley is both so it's in what she creates and the way that she looks at the world so did she, she do that has one this... with the, the hat that's in your apartment? Is she the artist? No, that oh. was actually a client of mine who created that. So oh, I bought yeah. that off of a client, a client of mine. But she has done the other pieces. She's done the piece. I think you've seen it where I said she made this actually this container of black and red, which is my favorite color combo, from pages of magazines. And oh, it's this technique yeah, yeah. Use glue. And she said she saved magazines for ages to make this for me because she wanted pages that were predominantly red and black. And so that's the kind of things that she creates where she's also done, like I have one of her paintings as well too, but it's also in those kind of uh, objects where it's, you won't believe that it's made from this, or you won't believe that this could create this. So it's, a way of bringing things. There are many people who paint and people who paint in different degrees of ability. But, you know, some people just have a way of painting a picture that transports you and some other people, it's more of a, uh, what do they call it? It's just, it's a very kind of literal painting. Right. Photorealistic is what they call it. But Valley, like there's an abstractness to her, the paintings that she does, but also to the work that she creates, the physical work that she creates, and the jewelry and the ceramics and the other objects. So mm-hmm. she's always looking at things. So she's introduced, so she's been influential in two ways, both in terms of who she's introduced me to. And I mean, all of virtually all of those people have been people that neither of us have met. So these are artists and people like Bill Cunningham, um, Iris Apnell, which is an amazing, another amazing person uh, who's a textile designer and just great style, like woman of style. There's a movie made of her called Iris and I urge everyone to check that out. 
And uh, so Valley has introduced me to, to a myriad of individuals, of artists, of performers, of spiritual, spiritual teachers. Valley's very, she's not formally religious, as my friend Cherie is, but she's a very right. spiritual person. So she really believes in sort of the power of making things happen. And uh, the influence, or her influence on me has been me seeing that, her applying that in her life. She's somebody who's fascinated by people, enjoys people, is not judgmental about people. And people really, I mean, poor previous to COVID, when Valley was out and about, there's so many people that come up to her. She just has that charisma. And people are attracted to her. She's met so many people throughout her career. And uh, things happen for her because she sets things in motion. And she's been there for me, like where the, the personal part of this or the, the very personal part of this comes through at sort of moments when I felt like all was lost. You know, right. I was between contracts, you know, professionally speaking, between homes, not, mm-hmm. not that I was homeless or anything, but I was like looking to move on between relationships, romantic relationships. And Valley said things things will work out. You just have to kind of set that out into the universe. And she's not just somebody dispensing advice. She's also somebody learning as well, too. So it's not just a one sided, like she's this guru that passes this down. I'm just, I'm so delighted. I'm never more delighted than when Valley says to me, it's just like, oh, when you talked about, or when you introduced me to this person, or when I was thinking about something you said in terms of a subject that we'd been discussing or something that I'd introduced her to, I feel just, I feel sort of puffed up with pride that this, this woman who has so much artistic ability and so much knowledge is learning from me too. And, um, you know, we always have these great conversations that are so rich Mm -hmm. that I just feel transported. Like she's somebody she talks about in a way that's not like, she's also a very like practical, pragmatic person as all are the people, all the people on my list. Um, But there's, you know, she talks a lot about sort of like, it's all just energy. You know, right. we're all just energy and sort of the thoughts, how we think is instrumental in what happens to us and how right. we affect other people, how we live our lives. And we have to think about that and keep that in mind, especially when we're going through hard times. As I know, like all of us are, all of the yeah, world yeah. is yeah. Through, through COVID. But I mean, all we can do is kind of influence the, the people that are around us and um you know that oftentimes we think about having a global effect on people and you know that's important i mean as as well-known people do as celebrities do as as the famous and the fabulous do but there's so much that we can influence within our direct sphere of people yeah you know including our own friends. It sounds funny because it's sort of the, oftentimes you think it or I'll think it's like, well, I want to be in a position in which I can be a positive influence on people in a teaching. I've been a facilitator and, you know, and an instructor and a, and a, and a coach and a, and a, and a mentor um, in various capacities, but we forget about the people with whom we have more, shall we say egalitarian, where it's more of a friendship relationship, how we can influence people and be influenced by them. Yeah, the she sounds like so amazing. She does. I, I, at some point, I really want to introduce the two of you because it's, I mean, maybe, maybe even distance phone call or what <laughs> have you, you know? Yeah. Because, and, and I want, and I think you would likewise have the influence. I think she would be delighted and inspired by you oh. as you are to me. Now, you're not one of the people on my list, not because you're not an influence, because I just thought, well, you're the person that I'm doing the podcast with. So I thought that might seem a little bit too much like I'm trying to curry favor with influential <laughs> I don't need to curry favor. I'm awesome. So that, <laughs> that's it. That's the thing. So I did mention um, how we do it time-wise. I'm wondering how 
Well, you have one left, so let's go. Okay. Okay. So now I was wondering, so this person is bear, is, is uh, the opposite of all of these people in every, almost every single way, except being living as far as I know, and being a marginal human being. But <laughs> this okay. sort of ends okay. things on a down note. Okay, but I will speak just briefly and just talk about the points rather than just sort of disembowel this man verbally. Uh-huh. Speak to some of the points of what not to do, especially in a teaching capacity. So this was a person who was uh, a high school teacher of mine. Mm-hmm. And he was somebody who first made me realize that adults, I met him when I was, or I, I was in an English class with him when I was 14, 15, 14 to 15. Right. And I first realized with knowing him that adults weren't necessarily good people, even those in a, who were supposed, whose very profession was about being an educator and supporting young people. Right. That, um, and this is more to do with sort of the lack of, the lack of, um, well, instruction. Uh, this, the, uh, just as a caution, this is not a story about somebody who's done something criminal to me. Right. So I do want to state that. This is not me talking about that. If this was the case, this would be <laughs> what a different show. Um, but this is more about, he was, I was in his class and he just took an instant dislike to me, which was like amazing to me because although I was a high spirited um, young woman Uh and uh, still am like a high spirited, free spirited person, Uh I wasn't like sort of a bratty or destructive teenager. So for example, this man, and I kind of got an inkling that just right off the bat, you know, you have people who are haters, right? He just didn't like me as a person wasn't based on, you know, the fact that I was this horrible, destructive influence or, you know, a dangerous student or anything like that. But uh, the, the, the person who was my best friend, who was uh, an and, and brilliant writer, he just adored and would do everything in his power to try to break us up. But my right. friend was having none of it. it was it continued into adulthood until her untimely passing a few years ago, sadly. Uh-huh. So he would do everything like he would. um, So he praised her as he should and was a very good kind of mentor and support. But for myself, I was getting these very um, un. Hostile, maybe? Unfair. Uh, Hostile. Unfair. I started to learn, Gail, that the fact that things were not fair in terms of not just the way we were treated, but perhaps the marks and the way that educators and teachers in our lives, like the feedback they gave. Okay, so for example, like I, as then, as now, was loved to write, loved to read, and was, you know, a good, a good writer. So it was a skill set that I had. And I would really have to, like, even if this sounds like, sounds rather arrogant, but for me to write so that I wouldn't receive a passing grade, I'd have to actually work at it. And very few people in English classes, you'd basically have to almost be like, be like illiterate. It wasn't that you were going to be, you weren't going to fail classes like a math class. You weren't going to fail in English class unless you didn't turn turn in assignments or that there was some part probably comprehensive or basic, you know, I mean, this, this is like grade 10 English, right? Right. But I was getting like, I was failing this English class and my parents refused to believe that there was a bias against them. 
So, I mean, in light of my turning in a, a, you know, a note from my mother that was written in crayon saying, please excuse my daughter, you know, from having to turn in assignments as she is undergoing psychiatric issues, which, you know, written in crayon, you think he would see this, this instructor, this teacher would see the humor of, he just, that made him hate me even more. Like, I guess he wasn't dramatic, obviously, you know, flagrant. This wasn't me trying to get away with something. This was me, you know, that was, that was kind of the level of the shenanigans that I was up to in his class. But anyway, and I thought I have to prove to myself that this is something personal and this isn't that like, I'm really like so bad of a writer. We're talking like, this wasn't even like, I'm just failing. This is like, he was giving me a 25%. And oh, and also whenever he was giving assignments back, he wouldn't actually go through the class and sort of saying people's name and handing them out and putting them on on their desk. He wouldn't even give me mine back. He put it face down on his desk and I'd have to go up and ask him like, like I was, you know, Oliver Twist of the Charles Dickens eponymous Oliver Twist novels and ask for my paper from him and then see whatever horrifying mark, which at this point was in the 2030s. But at this point, I'm still, I'm young, I'm doubting myself, right? So I thought I need to find out just for my own edification and education in, in the real world if this does correspond or if these deliberately out to get me. So I thought, I know, okay, the next time we have to have with the next assignment was one in which we had to write a short story, right? So nobody fails for writing a short story. Like even if it's a boring story, right? As long as you've written it and it's fairly literate, you're going to get at least a passing mark, right? Exactly. So I thought, okay, well, I wasn't going to do, I was no fool, uh, that even then I was no fool and I'm not I wasn't going to write say I wasn't going to uh, copy word for word William Faulkner you know or Ernest Hemingway and say no really it had to be something that was lesser known but still something that somebody had been awarded for and yes right. I hear you and maybe listeners crying plagiarism plagiarism the point being is that this was not a published story this was not I I I wanted to see, I had an effect in mind for what this would have. And if what, what, what I expected it to be came to pass, then there was no danger of me getting credit for something that, well, plagiarism, right? So whether that's published or whether I'm getting credit and a mark for doing something that was a flagrant copying of other people's work wasn't in question unless things went very much sideways. So what I did is I diligently copy, I found a science fiction story in like one that had won some award, but I knew, I knew for a fact he wasn't, this teacher wasn't a science fiction fan. So it was Uh in one of like the, the digest or or something like analog, um, which was a compendium of, of short stories. And often they they would have like award-winning ones within the genre. Right. But again, this was sort of more of a lesser known one. Anyway, so I copied that word for word, handed it in. And I was all like, I I can still remember the date clearly because (laughs) one, I thought I'm loving this little test because there was no point saying my parents were just like, you need to work harder. And then when I'd show them stuff that I'd written, they're like, well, if this is what you know, this is what your teacher says, this obviously is what it deserves. And they wouldn't give me feedback on before I turned it into him, so that I could kind of gauge that, no, this is being unfair. Okay. So anyway, so the same sort of same sort of scenario unfolded, we got I was beside myself with excitement at this, uh, at this duplicity for a point for a purpose, everyone got theirs back, including my closest friend. And I went up to him and he sort of offhanded like he hardly like even looked looked at me called me by name right. there, there there was definitely something going on handed it back and imagine my excitement when I found out this award-winning story had received a disdainful 38 mm. <laughs> percent from my, the instructor okay and I I could barely conceal my excitement 
the story is turning in much more to an anecdote than I, I originally wanted it to be just basically like, here's a horrible man. If you come across him, you know, please turn, turn, give him a withering glance and turn away. But anyway, so I looked at this mark and, uh, and, and said, oh, oh, this was like, it was hard to conceal my excitement because this had played out exactly. If he had given me a great mark, Gail, then I'm like, oh my God. Well, one, I've now just plagiarized the story and got credit for it. But two, it's like, no, I am a terrible writer. This way, I just knew I was a terrible human being, right? Not, right. But not a terrible writer necessarily. And he's just like, and keep in mind, it was a fanciful, fantastical story. So when he and I said, oh, why, why, why this mark? I, I thought my story was pretty good. And he basically, his critique was like, well, that's something that could never happen in real life. And I thought, even at that young age, I'm like, have you not read any sort of like, well, science fiction, fantasy, any magic realism of the South American writers, you know, where they were writing under political, you know, stringent political situation, and they would make fantastical tales. Like, are you a complete idiot? I didn't say that, but thought that. And I simply, and he said, you know, he says, I would also strongly caution you against ever becoming, a, ever doing any writing or ever becoming a writer in your adult mm. life. Yeah, and that's Gail, terrible. And, and okay, now myself, I mean, I've I've done like um, various sort of training sessions and um, presentation training with youth, not young, but you know, junior high and high school uh, students. And I can't ever imagine somebody who is as warped to tell somebody young that they should never do that they don't have them in them they don't have the talent even if you would you know even when you would get back sort of uh, you know assignments and things or see people performing and think yeesh privately to tear down somebody in literal words yeah takes a certain nastiness in your heart a certain evil in your heart and I simply said to him I thought because this had the exact um, effect that I had hoped that it would and restored my faith in myself as a writer I said well thank you Mr. Cunningham Mr. Ron Cunningham you have taught me more today than you will ever know right well that's an unfortunate um situation that you had but it sounds like you dealt with it well and yeah and then I later published actually I wrote an account of this of what I've just um told you about and and uh permanent filter listeners about I actually wrote an article about that and had that published in a magazine so I felt some vindication there's certain sort of a certain smug vindication but the thing is, is I didn't want to end on this note. I wanted to talk about this. This is more of a cautionary tale. Right. For yeah. in, in, uh, in a rich ocean of people, people even beyond those on the list of, on my short list of influences, but people out there who I've, I've learned from who have been, uh, an influence who have taught me in ways both small and large about being a better writer and person and friend and woman and human being. Awesome. That those that is in the majority. Well, it certainly has most for the most part being very, very inspiring. And then for it's too bad that the last bit was kind of uh, not as inspiring, but at least you took <laughs> something out of it. <laughs> this is it this so, is it yeah so um yeah I just didn't know how to I I kind of wanted to have a bit of a, a sort of a bit of a cautionary a bit of an anti like hmm. uh, a bit of an anti-inspiration on the list but I didn't want to I kind of wanted to separate him like airspace wise from these other influences and right. I didn't want to lead with him and I didn't want to embed him in lest he be thought, lest others be tainted by his presence. So <laughs> well, fortunately, it was but, in the so, past, so, you know, can move along. 
you know, you can move along and, and learning from that. And then I did write a great article, as I had said, that was, that was printed in a magazine. So what magazine was about, it? about this experience, it was a magazine called paper cuts. Ah, interesting. It was a local magazine. Ah, yeah. so yes. Well, I really appreciate um, you sharing all of that with us. Well, it was my pleasure. And thank you very much for your, um, pertinent and probing questions. I appreciated it, especially when you asked, what did I take from? Because as I was ruminating over these individuals who's had, who've had an influence, I was, um, it's, it's always good to encapsulate what it is specifically that you've taken from them and what you're applying moving, like moving on in your life. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. And even from negative influences, we can. If somebody, you know, if there's a person where you're like, well, I've learned not to do that, or I've learned not to take that personally, to learn not to, and that's very important too for, I think, mm. for ourselves and, and for listeners to take with them, is that sometimes there's a lesson that you can learn. There's things that you can learn from other people that aren't necessarily just like, oh, don't be like that, but also about, Here's how, you know, here, here's how to do things. Here's yeah. how to be a leader and an influence. Well, maybe, awesome. maybe sometimes people trying in their best way and not necessarily su succeeding in that, but at least you can kind of try, try, maybe try it in a different way and have some success with that. Yeah, that's, that is awesome. And I can't wait for next week when I give you my list. And I can't wait for next week either, Gail. I'm I'm at the edge of my seat. I'm the edge of my high heeled chair seat. Don't get too waiting excited. for that to hear <laughs> to hear who has been the influence on Gail Cook. Yeah. So, so with that, I will bid you and our listeners adieu for now until the next episode of Permanent Filter, where we will have part two of. This is Us and Them with Gail Cook's selections for her influences. Woohoo, I'm really looking forward to it. And I can't wait to talk to you guys again. Cheers. Goodbye. Bye. And take care. Take care, everyone. <laughs>